Grand Prix keep coming thick and fast. We're now two races into the Formula One season, both at the Red Bull Ring. We just had the Styrian Grand Prix. Big story there, technically, certainly, was the protest against Racing Point by Renault. We'll be delving into that in some detail with Gary Anderson, because why wouldn't you want to hear from uh, one of F1's most famous technical directors on this sort of debate? But uh, as ever, we are going to start with an opening question. Uh, I, I asked on Twitter earlier whether anybody had any questions. You can always tweet the questions at myself, F one or at Gary at Gary Anderson F1 uh, for the opening slot. So this one to you, Gary, is is whether you're ever faced with a scenario like Ferrari this year when the performance fell away dramatically from one year to the next under stable rules. How does that affect the internal dynamic and the working relationships within the team? Well, it affects it dramatically. And yes, I have had a, a couple of occasions. Actually, interestingly, both occasions that it, it, it meant me changing my job or losing my job, as we might call it. Um, not quite under stable regulations. I mean, whenever we had a drop-off in performance from year to year, um, there was usually, with stable regulations, there was usually a reason. Like from 91 to 92, we changed from the Ford engine to the um, the Ford Cosworth engine to the uh, Yamaha engine. Um, so there was always sort of little bits of reasons in there. But the, I suppose the uh, 97 to 98, um, again, we changed engines from uh, Peugeot to Honda, uh, Mugen Honda, and um, there was a major drop off in power, but more the car, the regulations had changed a bit, narrower track. Um, so we, uh, the groove tyres as well, well, the groove tyres was the main thing, to be honest. We we sort of went the wrong direction with it. But, you know, as far as we were concerned, we'd actually built a better car. It just didn't perform correctly. Um, and we didn't really know why. Um, the car created more downforce, uh, it was more efficient. It was stiffer, it was lighter, there was more ballast in it. So all the positive things that you sort of look at as a, as a general um, con- car concept, it was all there. But it didn't. the drivers didn't like like it, and it basically had a, a built-in aerodynamic error where, um, as I talk a lot about now, steering, uh, aerodynamic shift due to steering. And basically the more steering lock you put on it, the, the centre of pressure went rearwards. So the more steering lock you put on, the more understeer you got. So the more steering lock you put on, so the more understeer you got. So it was a, a sort of um, a confusing thing for the drivers, um, and just by you know scratching our head and looking, researching a little bit deeper, we started to look at steering lock effects, you know, more more dramatically and more more comprehensively, I suppose. And and by changing just a couple of little bits on the car, the centre pressure shift got it to move forward um, instead of going backwards, and and that just transformed the car. Mainly because the drivers then, you know, if he had a little bit of understeer, he could put steering lock on and the understeer would disappear. So it it made sense to the guy um, driving the car. So that was one of the situations. But as I say, you have to look outside of the box that you're sort of researching your car in before you find the problems. There's no point in just keeping piling bits on like Ferrari are doing at the moment, you know, because they're, cha- they're subtly changing the details of their car, but they're staying with the same sort of... Uh, package and obviously that package is creating a problem one way or another we i think we all believe their engine is down in par uh, relatively um and this this f- new fuel flow measurement has caught them out um but also the car itself is not is not special you know Landon Norris said that the car was very quick around the corners but it was very slow in the straights well if that's true then they're a bit stupid because all you can do is back off the wings a bit and you know get the compromise right between the straight line speed and cornering speed um but it's uh you know it's more to it than that and i think ferrari need to look very deeply at how they research the their car and the developments for their car because there's something missing there 
It's interesting you mentioned uh, that those situations you faced in the past, in some cases, led to you uh, moving on to, to pastures new, should we say. Would you be a little bit worried if you're in Ferrari that they could get a, a little bit trigger happy? Because we have seen that before in Marinello. You know, somebody has to be accountable for it, to be honest. Ferrari's a massive, massive organisation with a massive following in Italy. So they're not, they're not you know, your small, independent little team like we, you know I was involved with. But there is a reason for it. He, as far as I know, is a very good technical engineer. He's very good with the engine package. He was very good with the initial chassis that brought in this sort of new concept of the side pod arrangement that everybody has followed. Obviously, there's more to it than one person. But to, to sort of promote that guy into being team principal at the same time, it's impossible. And I said it at the time, you know, this is wrong. This will, this will end up with, unfortunately, probably his head on the chopping block because... Somebody's got to take the, the, the response for it. He he was moved from being a jo- doing a job very well that he was that he was good at doing to a job that it's, it's not his his profile. So you know Ferrari have, have brought this upon themselves for sure. They, you know as an as an organisation they brought this upon themselves, and the only way they'll uh, they'll get out of it is to make some changes. Those changes don't have to be as draconian as getting rid of somebody, but there has to be changes made in that management structure to. Uh, to alter how it operates because it's, it's it's going nowhere at the moment. Yeah, it's interesting. You uh, you did, as you mentioned, uh, a couple of years ago when it happened, uh, you mentioned this could be the way it goes. So, uh, yeah, interesting interesting to plot. But let, let's come over to the main topic, which is this Renault protest against Racing Point. It's quite a complicated one. We have talked about the pink Mercedes before, but there's all sorts of things connected to this. I guess at its core, we need to start with what they're actually protesting and what our best guess is on on how valid it is and what direction they're going to go. We know that the brake ducts in particular, which are a new listed part for this season, are a particular matter of focus, which is not insignificant. So how do you read what you know about the case? It's one of those sort of situations where obviously, they, as we say, everybody's calling it the pink Mercedes. Um, it, the car is definitely a good copy of last year's Mercedes. You know, visually, if you look at small details of it, it's it's in that that vicinity. Now, if you want to copy something by taking photographs and researching it and optimizing it and doing your wind tunnel research in that direction, then that's fine. You know, you can achieve it. To achieve it and get the same success as Mercedes did with their 2019 car, it's a pretty tough task because, you know, you've still got the same group of people working, taking what you can design from a picture and optimizing it in the best way possible to get the best performance out of it. So all over the car, that's what it looks like. Now, um, Racing Point are using Mercedes uprights, um, rear suspension, uh, gearbox, hydraulic system, engine, you know, lots and lots of stuff. So it's obviously something that will drive them in a certain direction. And the direction they wanted to go in was with the rear ride height because they didn't want the, the, uh, the ride height they didn't want to follow the Red Bull route of high rake because Mercedes were following a low rake situation. And, you know, you, you can't doubt Mercedes' success in the last few years. So what they've they've got is a package that aerodynamically creates an aero platform that seems to be more consistent. And in the, within that package is obviously the brake ducts. And the brake ducts this year are classified as an aerodynamic part of the car, which means you've got to have the intellectual property rights to you. You've got to have created and designed them and researched them yourself. It's probably one of the most intricate parts on the car that you can't see. Um, because what, what you see, what you see is not necessarily what makes it work well. It's what's inside of there that you can't see. 
and it isn't open for pictures. Very, very seldom you will see any car there with the brake duct stripped down or the upright stripped down. So I think that's why Renault have gone for this 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 component. Uh, when you protest something, you can't just protest it generically. You have to name a certain component. If they if they were to you know name the front wing, for example, and the, one of the wing profiles was slightly different, which I'm sure it is, um, then it wouldn't be legal. It wouldn't be illegal. It would be legal to have designed it themselves. The concept might be doing exactly the same thing, but brake duct wise and the upright wise, because they use the uprights from the Mercedes, um, it's the big, it's the best thing for them to go for if they really want to try and prove it. It it will bring it to a head. That's the most important thing because there's too much talk about it. Um, everybody copies something from somebody else, or even if it's just the concept. The you know the, the side pods, for example, Ferrari brought in the the rearward side pods with the crash structure at the front of them. Every team in the pit lane has that now. They didn't copy it, but they copied the concept of it. And they've, they've found the solutions to making it work well. So at the end of the day, you know, it's a visual sport and everybody will do what they can to make their car better using other people's ideas. But, you know, the question is, has, has Racing Point gone that little bit too far? Just to take you back to something you were talking about, and this is an ideal question for an entirely audio-only format, but the internals of a brake duct, what might you encounter in there? Because it's tempting to think of a brake duct as sort of a, just a big horn almost that, that feeds cool air into the into the brakes. And effectively, that's what it is at its most basic level, but it, it's way beyond that. So what might be on the inside? What detail might you encounter? Within the brake duct, there's a lot of air separation, I suppose you might call it. I mean, there's the brake caliper you have to cool, there's the centre of the disc where you see those holes on the brake disc that you feed air up through to to create to reduce the, the mass temperature of the brake disc. You need to you need to surface cool the disc so the when the pads are on there the surface temperature gets very high. Um, you need to make sure you you keep all that temperature away from the wheel bearings. Um, also, you're you're trying to turn some of that airflow out through the outside of the wheel again to create this outwash. And you're trying to make sure the hot air from the brake duct goes out outwards um, again because you don't want it coming inwards because that will affect the underfloor dramatically. Um, also, the the fact that the um, you know managing that flow in detail and within within that that uh, carbon fibre piece that we see and putting it where you want it to be and making sure that it um, heats the rim whenever you want the rim heated for uh, warming up the tire or doesn't heat the rim whenever you don't want it heated up. You know, all that stuff is about micromanaging the flow that's going through the, what we call the brake duct to part you out to the sea. And there's no two teams do that the same. You know, if you go back to Racing Point um, a couple of years ago, you know, they would run different ducts left and right because the circuit would mean that the the brakes were different temperatures slightly from left to right, but also the fact that one tyre didn't heat up, one front tyre didn't heat up as well as the other front tyre. So you'd be cooling the brake differently and you'd be dissipating that hot air differently side to side on the car. Now the brake ducts they've got now, um, they, you know, visibly they do look very like Mercedes brake ducts. Um, pictures I've seen is comparing the two, they're, they're, you know, they're very alike. And the thing you can look at is, you know, where the, where the little fixings, because they're made up of many components, where the little fixings are on the brake ducts, more than the duct itself, you know, are the fixings in the same place? Are the, is the brake duct split into the same amount of parts? Does those same parts have, you know, the same, um, yeah, as I say, the same fixing positions, or do they 
did it connect up in the same way? There's lots of detail in there that I'm sure the FIA will look at to see if um, if it looks as though it's been a direct copy, if it's been a, a you know a pictorial copy. Um, it's it's a difficult thing to do because you know, like anything, there's always going to be subtle differences. But where, how, what level of subtle difference do you get to before you accept that it's a completely different um, component? And of course, in terms of information exchange, there's this extra disadvantage that they could have had Mercedes brake ducts l- looking at them last year, couldn't they? And then you could kind of engineer them on from there or set that design. So there's grey areas there that I mean, it must be significant they've gone with the brake ducts, not just because of the internal surfaces that are hard to see, but also because of this change in the, in the regulations. So I guess I guess what Renault's trying to do is prize open a door to tackle some of the inconsistencies that, that exist within the rules. Yes, I mean, that's the thing. The rules have now got just absolutely, well, they're unbelievable. There's so much of them, so many detailed lists of this and lists you can use and lists you can get from suppliers and lists somebody else can make for you and lists you must do yourself. Uh, I mean, it's, it's to be honest, it's madness. I have to say it's just crazy. I mean, you you either allow things to be bought, purchased, or manufactured by someone else. You know, when we started Jordan in 1991, we we had no manufacturing facility whatsoever. You know, we went to a a carbon fibre shop over in in Huntingdon and said, look, we're going to build this car, um, but we'd like you to manufacture the chassis and our composite components. Um, what we need from you is the fact that when we need something, you will respond with immediate effect. You know, I'm not going to. You know, you can't get rid of all your other customers. I know, but you know, they must understand that we have to have priority, and we signed a deal with them. We had the same with the suspension component manufacturer. We had the same with the gearbox machining people. We went to people and got them on our side, but they were completely outside of our jurisdiction. You know, we designed the component. We did the layup of the comp- of the composite stuff. We went to them and they would say, well, you know, could we use this? Could we do it that way? Could we, you know, make that bit first or whatever? And, you know, we'd buy into it because they, we were using their expertise. They were they were an expansion of our own company. And that's what you need. And nowadays, I'm not quite sure what that is because you must still be able to go to another company and, and get parts made if you need them because not every, every Formula 1 team has its, all its own manufacturing facility. Um, and then, so you're using other people's expertise. So there's a list of the parts you can do that with. Um, and so it goes on and on and on. So I think Renault, they're a bit, they're a bit, you got their, you know, a bit of a slap in the in the um, face with the performance of the of the racing point, I think. And that's what they're smarting at a little bit. But yeah, deep down inside, I think everybody wants a bit of clarification on, on what you can do and what you can't do. Because you have relationships between teams, Ferrari and Haas, Ferrari and Alfa Romeo, um, Red Bull and, and uh, uh, what they call them now, um, not Toro Rosso, the other one, Alpha Tori. You know, so there's relationships between teams, and you know, where do you draw that line? And I think um, people are seeing a relationship between Mercedes and Racing Point that they're they're getting a bit, you know, a little bit smelly at. But the, the big problem is the car performed quite well on the Friday. The car was quite quick, so that's highlighted the problem. You know, if they were just been running in the midfield again. Um, then nobody would have paid much attention. They say, oh, you didn't do a very good job of copying that, did you? But they did do a good job of doing it, and they've got a good car, and they've got good drivers in it. You know, I think Stroll's done a good job at the weekend. So what? this will clarify it. You know, this will put it to bed, I'm sure. It can't go on. It's a bit like uh, the Mercedes DAS system with Red Bull. It put it to bed. End of story, get on with it. And this will do the same thing here. 
And from what you, you're saying as well there, all this, the stuff about listed parts, what you can and cannot do, it's it's strange, isn't it? Because there's there's kind of two ends of the spectrum here. You either have customer cars or you don't. That Those are the two extremes. And Formula One has fought quite hard in general against customer cars over, over recent years, certainly. But you've also got this thing where you can almost go know two-thirds of the way down the uh the line towards customer cars now if you if you do it in terms of number of parts then quite a large amount of the car you can get from elsewhere obviously the chassis itself the the monocoque you can't the bodywork you've got to do so a lot of the performance stuff you've got to do outside the the engine and gearbox but in terms of just sheer volume of bits in a car you can get a lot of it so it it just seems curious that you have this no we're not going to have customer cars but then you have this creeping necessity if you like to make it possible for the hasses of this world to to appear i guess that just shows why formula one's got this problem with its rules in terms of what teams are and how massive teams are and how difficult it is to to start a yeah team it is i mean you know there's teams out there that like Haas that probably wouldn't exist if they couldn't latch onto some of the parts that uh, that they buy from ferrari um and, and it's a fine line i mean i i genuinely for many many years have have um, wanted Formula One teams to stand on their own two feet, design your own car, and I would still, I would still sway that direction. To be honest, however, if you look sort of inside of it, if you, if you take the chassis for example, and um, and you take the the well, yeah, the chassis, and then you've got the halo on it. The chassis itself is one of the most expensive things on on the F1 car, and all the crash tests, all the stuff you have to go through, all the risks you take with it, you know, that's an area where it, it in itself could be a standard chassis, could be built by whoever, you know, nominate it, put in a, put in a, um, a quote for it from Red Bull or Ferrari or, or whoever to make a Formula One chassis. And then you clothe it in your own bodywork. And that's up to you because, you know, all these cars have got halos on them, for example. Underneath that is the same halo. And then you put a little bit of clothing on it with... Uh, with either your fairings on the top of it or the fairings on the side of it or whatever. You can't do very much, but it's it's there. We don't jump up and down and scream and shout because they're all using the same halo. You know, it's all, all quite happiness because it's just so much better financially and, and test-wise, you know, the tests are done with the halo um, on your chassis. So there's, a, there's room for a lot of simplicity in Formula 1, um, but still to keep the, the each team's own stamp on what you see by having your own bodywork on it. So a lot of room to make Formula One, I suppose, cheaper to 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 come into. Um the way the way the lists are done, I think it's it's not practical. It's it's just too complicated because it's it's just bits and pieces all over the place that you can do and you can't do. So as I say, this will maybe bring it to a head a little bit and uh, maybe make people look at it a little bit more. Yeah, I think there's a feeling among some of the other teams that that's one of the important things to do, where the line in the sand is drawn, and really create it as a as a test case. It's going to be one of those interesting ones to uh, to to watch. But it's strange, isn't it? Because I guess th- this whole thing about team partnerships, you know, when you were starting up Jordan, I guess it wouldn't really have occurred to you to go down the road to I don't know, go down to Woking and say, "Oh, can you stuff?" Because th- these these partnerships really actually was Force India that that sort of started the modern era of them wasn't it, with their, their Mercedes deal, uh, the McLaren Mercedes deal in 2009? If, if I go back to 2003, I mean, I sat in in um, McLaren's offices with Martin Whitmarsh negotiating a deal for a technical relationship with them and a gearbox supply. Because at that time we sort of realised that, 
you know, doing it all on your own as a small team was, was pretty tough. Um, and I remember Ron Dennis walking through and sort of looking and saying, you know, who are you? What are you doing here in my office? But, uh, yeah, we, we, you know, we sort of, on face value, agreed a bit of a deal. At that point in time, unfortunately, um, McLaren wanted a lot of money for it. So if you took the cost to Jordan relative to uh, what we'd have to pay McLaren, the, the cost was higher. You know, for a team like McLaren, um, at that point in time, as I say, they did things better than we did them. And when you do things better, they cost more. So our cost would have gone up with it. Um, so you have to have this this fine line in the middle, this practical solution, where you can do something like that, and and you don't actually end up spending more money. You know, Haas Haas's deal. Um, they're they're a typical example of of what they pay for stuff to Ferrari. You know, there's a front wing end plate or a, a wishbone or something, whatever they get from them. Um, does that cost more to buy a Ferrari component than it does for what a Haas component would exist of? And that needs to be looked at very carefully before you decide whether you're you're better off by going a, a route that, that allows you to have an association with another team. What I'm saying about the chassis is if there was a standard chassis in F1 that met all the crash tests, that had all the driver um, volume basically the same, so everything was there um, that you needed without doing all your own tests and all your own design and all your own structure and all your own manufacturing, and it was built by a current F1 team who, who um, you know, tendered for it as such, then you, you could end up with a better solution because it's it's, it's something you don't see. It, it, it looks the same. The hole in the top of it for the cockpit opening has to be the same. You know, the, the height of it's the same because that's what it is. So there's the small details. You know, the front cover, for example, over the suspension, that can be your team part. That's that's a clothing part. Um, that has to be your own part. And, and the nose can be your own part. The, the side pods, everything, all that aerodynamic surface can be your own part. But even inside the nose can be the the piece that that the uh, survive the structural piece that actually does the crash test. So you could save so much money in, in the big areas, but at the minute they seem to be looking at, at trying to change it in the small areas. You know, you're saving a few pence instead of saving tens, hundreds, or thousands of pounds. You're saving a few pence on some of these bits by going to another team, and I think it's it's just all about wrong. And of course, it gets more complicated in 22 with the various different types of parts and the open source and the listed parts, but that's probably a, a debate for, for another day. But but looking at just performance overall, that the job Racing Point has done in cloning this car, you know, we assume it's been done entirely legitimately, as Andrew Green explained to us in testing, based on photographs. That there's a, In fact, there's a great uh, article you did. We republished it on the site at the weekend, actually. We did it after testing about how they did it with what Andrew said about it and then your comments on it, and we republished that. That's, that's worth people having a look at. But if they've done that all that way and they've they've made such a good copy and it works, you look at it on track, it's doing what the driver wants. It's a, it's not just a quick car. It's a it's a consistent car, and, it, and it, it's the third quickest car all round on performance, isn't it, from what we've seen. So setting aside all the debate, they've done a hell of a job with it, haven't they? You, you have, they have done a hell of a job. You know, they've, got, they've got it right. Um it's one of those sort of situations where I've always said about high-rate cars, a lot of teams run high-rate cars because, theoretically, that should be better, and, and Red Bull make it work, um, to an extent, I suppose you might call it. Red Bull still isn't as quick as the Mercedes, which isn't a high-rate car. Um, but the aerodynamic problems that a high-rate car create because of consistency in airflow that you need down the sides of the car to seal that high-rake, 
and make the diffuser work is doubly difficult to achieve. So at the end of the day, if you're creating more downforce from the underfloor, but it's not there all the time, you know, then the car's inconsistent. And that, like we see with the, the red bullet at the moment, it's it does have a bit of a, a a bit of a spin problem here and there. Can be created by lots and lots of stuff, but high rate cars are more difficult to keep working consistently. So, you know, racing points change the direction to a low rate car and following the the concept by, from Mercedes is is a good thing to do. And they've obviously latched onto it very, very well. They got their performance out of the car. Um but you know, it's one of those sort of situations that it's a team that exists. Andrew Green wouldn't walk in one day to Racing Point and say, "Right, okay, boys, we're going to copy Mercedes's 2019 car." That's a company decision to do that. He's sat down with the other parts of the company, management of the company, and they've all said, "Look, you know, we're a bit lost here at the moment. What's the best solution?" And somebody will come up with, "Well, why don't we look at the..." Mercedes concept and see what we get out of that um, so they've put a lot of attention into that and then at one point in time you have to decide do I go, do we go our own route or do we go down this other route because you can't do both, as a small team there's no way you can do both um, because you just do both badly so at one point in time they must have got to a level where they thought okay we're getting this is making sense, we're getting returns for our wind tunnel effort that we don't get normally with our own car We've got a long way to go to catch up with what we've got from our car, but that is responding. And then you put your attention into that new that new way of doing it, you know, because if you just run the car through a different ride height range in the wind tunnel, um, and you end up getting you know getting re- response from parts you're putting on the car, and that's what you find with a good car. When you when you're developing it, you put things on it. You get your you get your direction from from component changes. And you you sort of make other component changes with the direction that's given you, and they respond. You know, it's as important to have a a bad response as a good response because as long as it responds, then you can understand that a little bit more. And they obviously got to that point where they were getting response from the car for doing things, and then you filter that down and you try to make sure that the response is positive all the time and, and that you get a return from it. And and that's why you keep on going in a certain direction, and obviously. For Racing Point, that's what they did, and uh, it's it, for them. You know, it's not the wrong thing to do. Um, we have to wait on the FIA's judgment. Up to now, the FIA have said, you know, what they've done is correct. Now it's been protested. That will bring it to a head, um, and we'll we'll see what happens. Yeah, and uh, whatever happens for Racing Point, they've certainly learned a lot from doing this. So this will feed all into the twenty twenty two car, which will, by definition, have to be uh, have to be all their own, own work, as it were. Well, let's just look a little bit. At the wider trends, what we've learned from the first two weekends, I mean, battle at the front, Mercedes has the advantage. We um, we know maybe the car's potentially a little bit weaker when it gets a bit hotter. The Red Bull generally is, is slower, although it was a little bit quicker in turn three, turn four in Austria. But it's, it's confirmed Mercedes decisively has the advantage, doesn't it? And Red Bull is playing catch up with this instability problem that you were talking about months ago from testing. Yeah, um, you know, overall, the end result is that, you know, being quick through one corner on a circuit is, is, is no good to your one or two. You need to be quick on the lap. And that's a compromise of downforce, um, cornering ability, low, high speed, medium speed and straight line speed. As I say, I keep using this word compromise because everything is, you know, if you went to Monza with Monaco rear wing on it, the car would feel fantastic around corners. Um, 
but unfortunately lap time would would not be very good so you get to you know the compromise of, of running the monza spec downforce and the car starts moving around around corners but it's quick down the straight so you know what one thing has to make up for the other and it has to make up for it in, in a way that makes you a better gives you a better lap time so the Mercedes has had that for quite a few years. That you know, most circuits and most most types of circuit, be they fast circuits, slow circuits, whatever, they've been able to find the right compromise for it. On occasions, you know, in the past couple of years, Ferrari have been able to threaten that here and there, and and Red Bull have been able to threaten that here and there, but not as an overall package, not as a as a, as a, an average for the, for the season. Um, as I said in the article I did about you know about coming up with the design of a car, you know you. You have the experience. You see, you you can get all the data. You know all the straight line speeds, everything. You have that for years, so you're you're updating your data bank all the time, and you're coming up with your, how would you call it, your your medium speed car, your average, Mister Average that will suit Spa, Silverstone, you know wherever, Barcelona, all those all those average circuits, all those corners and those average circuits. You've got every detail of every corner, entry speed. Um, clipping point speed, exit speed. So you you put to, together a, a generic track as such, and that's what your development direction needs to make better. That that's your track you've got in your simulation, and it matches up everything that you've got through the years best possible. And then each side of that, you got you know the Monaco's one way, and you got the Monza's the other way. So you got to allow yourself enough window of um, opportunity to optimize that Mister Average car as such to. to to be good at, at those other two circuits, and that, Mercedes are very, very good at that. It's also the same thing with temperature. You know, you you pick your ambient average ambient temperature that you race at, i.e., let's say it's you know, twenty eight degrees C or something, and you do all your research work at that sort of level. So you cool the car well at twenty eight degrees C, and then you know when you open up the, the rear ducts a little bit, you lose a little bit, and you know at that faster circuits or the um, at the cooler circuits. If you if you can close up the ducts a little bit or the bodywork a little bit, you'll gain a little bit. But you know if you decide if you design your car to run at fifteen degrees ambient, you're going to be in trouble. If you design it to run at forty degrees, fifty degrees, you're going to be in trouble because you won't get the aerodynamic form out of it. So you you know as I say, you build up this Mister Average track and you work from there, and and that's the thing that Mercedes have been pretty good at doing. And also another team that you were being positive about, and I know you get lots of complaints over the past few years about how nasty you've been about McLaren when they were being rubbish. And uh, now suddenly you're, in recent times, you've been quite positive about them, almost as if they're doing doing well again. But we know they've got a pretty quick car, but you, you did a, a ranking of all the teams on the all-round performance, not just pace, but looking at the way they execute, et cetera. And lots of positive things to say about McLaren. You're positive about how good the car was in, in the wet as well. So McLaren are probably the team that can be, along with Mercedes, the most satisfied about getting what they could out of these two weekends. Yeah, I think, you know, whenever I looked at my my thing, it's, it isn't just about a, a snapshot of performance. It's not just about a snapshot of, of anything. It's about the general sort of thing of getting in the car and driving it and getting a result out of it or getting a, getting a lap time out of it. And both drivers seem to be able to do that. Um, the, the thing about it for me is that, you know, a few years ago, ago we, we heard it con- consistently about this is the best car in the pit lane, but this engine is is, is rubbish. Um, and the problem was that whenever the driver was saying that, the team was believing it. So the minute the team actually sort of thought, hmm, this isn't quite right, you know, there's something not quite right here. And it took the Renault engine to basically teach them that. Um, but as soon as the team realised that they... They weren't the best chassis in the pit lane. 
they started to change and they started to um, research things a lot deeper, a lot better, a lot more, understand them a lot deeper, a lot better, a lot more. And that's how you can sort of dot the I's and cross the T's and build a better car. Um, they, 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 they went back and understood the car again, understood where they were, and then they moved forward. They didn't just keep throwing bits on the car to, to see what would happen. They, you know, they went back and looked at it and thought, okay, you know, our car is a bit draggy. Um, it's, you know, X, Y, Z. So they, 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 they basically learned about the car and then they applied changes to the car. And I think that's vitally important. And that's why I sort of compliment McLaren because they, they, they regrouped and they regrouped well. They brought in some new people, um, solid people. I think James Key's a very good technical director. Andrea Settle is obviously very good at running the team and, and organising the team and making sure the team work efficiently. Yes, they have slip-ups like Saints rear wheel um, not being able to be changed quickly enough this time. You know, that will always happen to a team. Um, as I said the week before last, you know, everyone's a bit rusty, especially when it comes to pit stops. All right, practising it, but, you know, the heat of the moment on a Sunday afternoon, it's, it's always slightly different. But in general, you know, they've, they've understood the car. The car was quick in the wet, it was quick in the dry. Um, they get, they've got a couple of good race results out of the car. Got good points. That's all you can ask for is a, a team that goes home with a smile on their face because they've achieved the weekend that they, they want to. You see, now you're being nice about McLaren. We've just got to accuse you of being biased in favour of them because you used to work no, there. I'm, you know, I'm never, I don't think I'm biased towards anybody. I, I, I only see it from, I was in balls in Formula One. It's a very, very tough life. It's a brutal life. It used to be more brutal actually because, you know, you, you, you didn't get much time to get, to get judged. You know, whenever you consider that Formula One normal circumstances, every two weeks your performance and your ability to react to that performance gets judged. If you take it, you know, you make a new washing machine, you probably spend three years or four years or whatever designing it and, and developing it. And then it's probably five years before you ever get judged on, on your design. Formula One's not like that. Formula One's instant. You have to, it has to respond instantly. Your development direction has to respond instantly. And, and that's what Ferrari need to realise. They can't keep saying, we've got some bits coming maybe for such and such a place and we're bringing them forward to, to this race this weekend. And then when you see the bits, you know, they ain't going to change the characteristics of that Ferrari car. No way they're going to change that. So, no, no they, they need to look at very deeply at, at what, their, what their thought pattern is towards Formula 1. Yeah, although the one thing they didn't have in uh, in Formula One in your day was regular COVID nineteen tests, so you, at least you were spared that. So that's the, that's the downside uh, downside uh, these days. Uh, well, I think that covers it really well. Thanks very much, Gary. I mean, we will, I very very much imagine we'll be talking about Ferrari's hungry upgrades because they'll have some more there this weekend uh, on next week's podcast. But loads of storylines, and uh, we'll keep a close eye on racing points. So thanks very much, Gary Anderson. And do head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen where you'll be able to read all sorts of stuff from, from Gary. Some great insight on there and the rest of the team as well. Mark Hughes, Scott Mitchell, myself. And check out our YouTube channel as well and our other podcast, the Race F1 podcast. So join us next week on the Gary Anderson F1 show. Mm-hmm.